0: Good morning. Oh, hi, somebody's out there. OK, I'm Liam. And um, John's been my host while I've been here the last few days, my first trip to Bloomington. Feels like home. I'm a Midwest guy. If, if this is the Midwest, right? OK. All right. Uh, he's been a, such a gracious host. Last night, he took me to uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. And uh, he was being nice to me because he knew my alma mater was uh, playing, and so uh, we were able to see the last part of, the, of that game. And I'm sorry, it was football. It's not basketball. I, I know, um, you know, that's a concern here. <laughs> uh, although I've I've heard that there are some of you who mingle in the crowd who uh, really are football fans and from other universities that will not be named uh, while I'm here. So I'm just glad to be with you. Anyway, when we were Buffalo Wild Wings, I don't know, we were talking about old times when, when, I, was his, when I was his teacher, and we talked about that place where, where I taught, and uh, we got into this little story exchange, and I said to John, let's play a game. I'll bet you can't top this story. And then I told a story, and he told a story and topped it. And so I said, "Well, okay, let's keep going." But you can't top this. I told him another story. He topped that. By about the third or fourth time, I, I just said, "I give up. I give up, John. Do n- do not ever play that game with John. Uh, a story of top that because uh, because he uh, he knows some great stories and they're better than mine. So." So that was the way it goes. But I thought about what I was going to talk about this morning, and I realized that I'm going to open with a little story about myself so that will give you an insight into me. It's a definitive story in my life. But I realized that I'm talking to a lot of people who know, who, who, live in a, who live in a college town, who are associated with a university, who know a lot about education. And so I'm going to tell a story that you may say, oh, so what, that's happened to me. In other words, you could... You could easily probably top this story, but I'm not telling the story for the wow factor. I'm just telling you that it's an important story to me and gave me a, an insight in my life that's made a difference in uh, the way that I saw my my life's work and how I could serve God. And it goes like this. when I was a, When I was a teaching assistant in my graduate school days, I was getting my I was getting my PhD in history uh, at a large university, also Midwestern University. And um, the first time that I had an opportunity to be assigned to a freshman survey class, I know some of you may be thinking, first of all, some of you may have been thinking, oh, I hated those taking those freshman survey classes. And some of you who maybe taught them think, oh, I didn't like teaching those huge freshman survey classes. But I was looking forward to it. It was my first opportunity in a public university to teach, to teach a class. And this one happened to be in modern era, which is the history of Western civilization from the, the, time the treaty of uh, Westphalia that ended the Thirty Years' War to the present day. So if you know what all of that stuff is, then you, you know what the content of the course was. It's not that important. The important thing to me was not just the content of the course, but where I got to teach it. Now see, this is cool to me. And if you think this is really odd, that's okay, but it was cool to me. I got to teach in this 19th century limestone building that had been the original College of Veterinary Medicine at the university where I taught. And that meant that in the center of this wonderful old building was this lecture theater, and it, this lecture theater, if you were if you were the person teaching the class, you got to enter by this little door. It's like coming onto the, you know, it's like you're coming out of this hidden room into the stage, and you enter into this circular place, and then around you is the whole lecture theater. It was like these vertical... You know, it was like the students are all sitting way up there and they're looking down. I mean, I had to look like this when I, when I talked to them, look up there. And I just had this picture of John Houseman in paper chase. And I wanted to call the freshman out and just say, Mr. Jones, stand up and tell what you know about Napoleon. And when he couldn't answer it right, I'd say, wrong, you got it wrong. This is what, this is what was really going on. So it was just this really cool environment in, in which to do this. And the secret was that when it was a veterinary college, this was the place where they rolled in the big animals and dissected them. That's why it was the way it was. So I never thought about the dissection stuff when I was, when I was doing this. Perhaps I should have. So I began to teach this class, and I was just so thrilled to, you know, to be there and to be able to do it. And in this, my first survey class in the university... Uh, Students after the class would do what students often did. They would come to the front and talk to me afterwards. They would ask a question about something I had said or usually they would ask about some assignment or what they were required to do. So students would come up afterwards and gather around this really cool kind of lecture podium that was there. And uh, one day, several weeks into the course, um, undergraduate woman came down and she had her boyfriend, and I think it was her boyfriend, I don't know, this, this boy always sat beside her and who was always kind of with her wherever she went. I never heard him speak, but, but she was really articulate and you know he was just kind of there. Um, she came down with him in tow and uh, came up to my desk and she said, um, with some other students standing around, she said, I know this sounds really crazy, can I ask you a really crazy question? And I said, sure, and she said, well, let me preface it this way. Um, you know, my parents warned me about coming to the university. I said, they did? She said, yeah, you know what my parents told me? They told me that all university professors are radicals who are so bored with their subjects they have nothing better to do than to try to corrupt young minds. And when she said corrupt young minds, she kind of smiled. And she said, now I've been sitting in your class for a couple of weeks and I know this is weird but, they were right about most of my professors, but there's something different about you, and I don't know what it is. She said, So here's here's what I'm asking. Would it be okay if I just if I kind of want to figure out what it is about you that's so weird, because you really bother me. <laughs> and I said, Well, I wouldn't want to bother you. She said, No, no, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, you you I think you're bothering me in a good way. I'm not sure. She said, As I sit through the class, if I can figure out what it is that's different about you, is it okay if I come up and say so, and would you tell me if I'm right? And I said, absolutely. If you guess it right, I will tell you absolutely, because I knew it was coming. I thought, wow, I haven't talked overtly about my Christian faith or the gospel. I've just been struggling trying to do a good job teaching this class. I didn't realize there was something about me that was, that was really strange. So about six, maybe it was six weeks later, uh, she, it was one of that time at the end of the class again. Here she comes down, and here was, uh, here was George in tow with her as well, and smiling as always. She came up to the podium, and this time there were a few more students standing around, and she came right up to the front, and she said, I figured it out. I know what it is. I said, you have. You you figured out what's different about me. She said, yeah. She said, here's what I noticed about you. You don't rant about politics like all my other professors. Um, You have told us no less than a dozen times in this course that if you're going to be involved in history, you have to be objective. You have to respect the people of the past and talk about what really happened rather than impose our views on them. She said, um, we were talking about the Munsterite Rebellion a few weeks ago and those were religious, kind of religious fanatics and you corrected a student who, who was making fun of them? She said, so I know you somehow respect religious people and who disagree with you and then finally what did it was uh, like today, when you were talking about the Battle of Verdun, you got all choked up about all the people who were killed in that battle, like you knew them or something. And she said, "So I got then I got it. You're a Christian." So with students around, I looked around at the broad sweep of my hands and I said, "You're absolutely right. You got it. I'm a Christian." I'd always wanted to say that. It echoed through that wonderful lecture hall. <laughs> See, I couldn't say it before, but now I could. Nobody could get me for saying it because a student had asked me directly, so I was able to, I was able to say it. Do you think it's po- just possible that I was convinced that the university classroom is a great place to be for the cause of Christ? In that moment, I was absolutely convinced that's exactly where I wanted to be. I was just a tired grad student. I was doing my imperfect best, and the Holy Spirit was taking it from there. I didn't present any tracts, there was no pressure, no, vo- no overt presentation at all. I was just doing the best I could, trying to be, present an excellent, objective, presentation of history. But I saw then something that changed my life, something perhaps for the first time, what I was doing in the public classroom was what Oxford Don Michael Green calls a form of teaching evangelism. And so there was some connection that I was feeling to what we're seeing in this passage in Acts 19 with Paul. We can't do what Paul did. I'm not going to like in this passage, you know, he, he's in the, he marches into the synagogue and he teaches for three months. You know, I'm not going to pick out a synagogue in the community and go march down there and start, go up at the front and say, did you know Jesus is the Messiah and start teaching? I mean, we can't do it that way. Michael Green says there's more to it than that. Paul was very s- specific in what he did. And I was doing some of the same things in that classroom. There uh, are three things that I think that I was doing that were very similar to what Paul does in the book of Acts and how he approach, approaches evangelism. Uh, he, Paul was investing in the long term. Now, not all missions work is in, the, is in the long term. Ultimately, I would hope it would be. But sometimes you can get real feedback. For example, if you, if you, help, if you go to a country to help people in the disaster and you hand them baskets of food where well, you get immediate feedback that wow this is really wonderful that people are having their needs met but sometimes long-term missions means that you never you don't get to see what actually happens in the lives of the people that you work with you're, you're just being faithful to do what you're supposed to do and that's, that's the way it was in that classroom I never saw that woman again after that class was over she made her grand entrance into my life, changed my life forever and was gone. They should write a song about that or something. But I don't know what her story was. I don't know what her home was like. I don't know what, if she became a great historian, probably not, and what she did with her life. But I was there investing and being faithful because I was there for the long term. I knew that I couldn't have that kind of feedback. And ultimately, only know when I, when I get to heaven and stand before Christ what some of those people in that lecture hall did. The other thing that I was doing was I was being a placeholder. You know, I couldn't be overt about my Christian faith. I was, I was prohibited from doing that. You know, that old separation of church and state thing was preventing me from doing it in the classroom. So ethically, I, I couldn't just stand up and rant and rave about the gospel. So I had to depend on God. God. I became a placeholder, what we call a placeholder, faithful to do what God had called me to do and then counting on him to bring about the results that he wanted. I never said I was a Christian and I never did anything that I thought was overtly Christian, but somehow she picked it up just from the way that I went about my work. That's being a placeholder. And like Paul, I think in Acts 19, I was investing in leaders Even though it was a big classroom, I taught those classes, had 250 to 400 people in the class. That sounds like a lot of people, but in terms of the world's educated people, it was a very small percentage of people in this world. Why would I invest in leaders? I invest in leaders because they're leaders. They're going to be leaders. They embrace the gospel, or at least are kindly disposed to it, it will make a difference in the, spru- in the spread of the good news around the world. So it's important work. Those of us who have taught or are teaching in universities or provide any of the support work there in the United States, we know that these people are the future leaders of our country. They're the future people who are going to find cures to cancer and launch us into, uh, into space or whatever they're going to do. We're investing in people who are leaders and Paul did the same thing even here in this very cool passage uh, where he is talking about the lecture hall of Tyrannus and if you looked at your bulletin I had a real strange title for this talk and I was talking about sailing with Paul in the in the blue ocean I'm alluding to a book you may be familiar with that was a business book called blue ocean strategy and this says that sometimes It's good for for companies and organizations to think in terms of accomplishing their mission by going about it and doing it in ways that are not obvious to everybody else. They talk about something called the red ocean, which is the way we often do business. We go about doing the same things, the obvious things, the same things in the same way that Everybody else does them. And sometimes we miss opportunities by doing that. Oh, we're doing important things, but we miss those opportunities. And they said that sometimes there becomes a competition when lots of organizations are doing the same kinds of things. They compete with each other. And then they call that Red Ocean because, well, this is kind of a gross analogy, but you know, uh, it's like sharks in a fight. <laughs> blood is in the water and the water turns red they said it's much better to have blue ocean a blue ocean strategy which is we do those things that are commonly done in the missions realm for example we're involved in church planting we're involved in feeding the poor we're involved in um, we're involved in bible translation all those things that are traditional missions And those are really important things and we need to keep doing them. But we also, in the blue ocean strategy, need to consider that there may be other opportunities at hand that we don't recognize that involve things that are, um, are tied up with our gifts and our abilities. And this is exactly what Paul does in this passage in Acts 19. And... Uh, as we look at the passage, what we see is that, first of all, Paul has this way of doing evangelism, right? If you look through the book of Acts, you read through the book of Acts, what you notice is Paul always does the same thing. Whenever he goes to a city, he goes to the synagogue first. He proclaims the message and waits to see what the response is. If the response is that they accept the message, then he Begins to train those people as leaders, and he moves on to the next city. Usually, that's not what happens. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. What he would do is he would go to the synagogue, like in this case in Ephesus. He would he would preach the good news about Jesus being the Messiah, and then there would come a point where he would see that they had rejected the message. And once they did, he would leave the synagogue, taking anybody who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he would, go to, he would go to the Gentiles in the city. Now these, some of my favorite passages in Acts are Acts 17 through 19. If you read those passages, you see that what Paul does is he not only goes to Gentiles after he leaves the synagogue, but he goes to particular kind of people who we're familiar with. But we don't often think about doing missions with those people. not talking about the fact that they're Gentiles. I'm talking about the fact that they are educated people. If educated people are still a, a small minority of the total world population now, imagine what it was like in the ancient world where the literacy rates were much lower and where people who were actually considered educated were not a very large portion of the population. But those are exactly the people in places like Athens and in Ephesus that Paul went to We're told that he went to um, he went to um, the rhetorical school uh, or the rhetorical lecture hall of a teacher named Tyrannus, and and some commentators mention that Tyrannus probably taught early in the morning when it was cool, and then uh, when the day was cool, and then for the hotter times or the siesta times in Ephesus, he would try to rent his hall out to make a little bit of extra money, and Paul was his client. We know from one of the alternate texts to this that probably has an ancient origin that Paul was teaching from 11 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. Probably the worst time of the day to teach. Because in Ephesus, as in college towns all across this nation, um, there may be more people awake at 1 in the morning than there are at 1 in the afternoon after they've eaten lunch. Nevertheless, Paul does it and he had this wonderful result, verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. How did they do that? Do you think tens of thousands of people crowded into the lecture hall to hear Paul speak at the worst time of the day? Absolutely not. But what happened was Paul was doing what Michael Green had called teaching evangelism. As he taught... These people that he was teaching were taking the message and they were going to all parts of the province of Asia, which if you look at a map of Turkey today, basically the western part of Turkey is what they are talking about, that whole geographical area. It's the western part of Turkey. So why am I sharing all of this? Because... I, not because I want you to necessarily do anything. This is, if, if I were talking to Tyrannus, I would tell him that this is, uh, this, this is not deliberative rhetoric that I'm engaging in here. I'm not telling you that there's something that you ought to do. What I would like to do is have you think about something, maybe something different that you haven't thought about. You live in a, you live in a university community, and you know what it's like to talk about people who follow Christ working in a university community. But now I want, you to take sailing, I want you to go sailing in the blue ocean with me for just a moment. I want you to use your imagination. Imagine a university community, not entirely unlike this one, half a world away with perhaps as many students as you have at IU, but it's a very different place for several reasons. First of all, and not for the obvious ones like language and culture, it's very different because unlike this university, there are no Christians who work there. The students go to lectures day after day never hearing about their fields or general education or arts and the humanities ever from someone who is familiar with a Christian worldview. And the university is different in a second way. Not only are there no Christian professors, but if a student was somehow to discover Christ in that environment, if they went off campus, there would be no churches where Christians gathered to hear good teaching of the Word and to have fellowship with one another. That's why I'm here today. I work with an organization that's concerned about that very issue. We want people to think about how they could be involved or how they could pray for educational missions of a different kind. We place, as John told you earlier, um, teachers, researchers, and administrators who are Christians in public universities outside of North America where um, there may not be any other Christian professors in that university and where there may be a community that definitely needs a church that is connected to that university and supports the people who follow Christ there. That's the work of global scholars. So... um, I'd just like you to think about that. And it's not a, it's a blue ocean idea. It's a little different than other kinds of mission work. But it's not a completely unfamiliar idea. Somehow it's related to some of the things that Paul did too. Paul had the same kinds of ideas uh, in his work and did the same things as well. In this passage we see Paul doesn't know Everybody that's being reached in Asia Minor, he doesn't know the final result of the spread of the gospel in that province. But Paul, I would say, is in it for the long term. Once he, would, he, once he was able to develop leaders in a place, then he moved on to another city, but those leaders had to carry on. His long-term vision was that he would no longer be necessary because his work was to get the mess stirred up and started. And of course, if you read, keep reading in Acts 19, you see there really was a mess, a riot in Ephesus. The second thing that Paul was doing was not only in it for the long term, but he was a placeholder. It meant that he was there because that's what the, Holy, the commission, the Holy Spirit had given him, and he was doing what the Holy Spirit's strategy was. Many times in universities, We can't open our mouths to openly articulate our faith in Christ. But the Holy Spirit does amazing things just because we're willing to be faithful to what he's called us to do. We want to place some of those kinds of people overseas in places where maybe there aren't many other Christians, if any. And we have stories, oh I could tell you stories about our professors who have been in countries where they are not allowed by any means to identify themselves as Christians or to talk about any sort of Christian types of things. But it doesn't stop the Holy Spirit from working and people coming to Christ. It's amazing, just amazing more amazing than I felt that day in that lecture hall. Paul was a placeholder. And then, wow, he invested in leaders. Not saying we shouldn't invest in all kinds of people, leaders and non-leaders. We should. But sometimes, sometimes we can only focus on meeting people's needs, confronting issues of justice, planting churches, doing doing those kinds of things. And we can neglect the strategy of helping to educate the future leaders of countries all over the world, making them open to and um, friendly to Christianity, if not actually embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we want to be thinking about that, how can we be more long-term in our thinking? How can each of us be placeholders and how can we support placeholders overseas? How can we invest in leaders? Well, there's more than one way to do missions and evangelism. Some share the four laws. That's how I came to Christ back in the 70s. Some share the bridge. Some have long conversations at Starbucks. I like those. Some in the early church focus on spending time with Jewish folks and having long conversations. Some minister to the poor. Every one of these things were needed. But also, needed is what Paul did he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And in being that, he innovated in a new market to the philosophers and educated in a lecture hall in Ephesus. Let's just let Paul's blue ocean strategy inspire us to want to serve God in new ways that we hadn't thought about before. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing ways in which you work thank you for opportunities you give us that we didn't even see before we pray that our lives would bring glory to you as we seek to honor the ways in which you're working in our lives and moving our hearts toward openness to the things that matter to you we pray these things in Jesus name amen